Let us pray. Father God, as we come before your word, let us see more of your saving power, more of your glorious reconciliation, more of your love. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. It's actually funny that Rob brings that up because theologians will often criticize Martin Luther and how he talked about Joseph and how he preached through Joseph because he continually draws these links to Christ. And I don't think Luther was wrong in doing that and seeing through the pages of Scripture, especially this text, how many links there are and foreshadows and anticipations to the better favored son. But today we come to a passage of reconciliation. See, a conflict has happened in the biblical story of Joseph so far that has lasted 22 years. I did a quick kind of search, a Google kind of search, of the longest wars of history, the largest, the longest engaged conflicts in history, and only 19 wars in recorded history last longer than 20 22 years or longer. That's pretty incredible. And yet, here, here we are, a period of 22 years where a relationship hasn't been mended, and that really isn't all that su- surprising in a world where often relationships have long-time conflicts. And yet today in this passage, we will get to see a peace break out. A peace that Joseph now calls for after Judah last time repeatedly brought up the name of his father. Fourteen times he called upon the name of his father in the longest address in all the book of Genesis as to a reason why this Egyptian lord must relent, must let Benjamin go. And then Judah at the height of love, at a height of love for the father, but also showing love for his brother, says, If it must be so, my life for his. And he becomes the first son of Adam to show that great exchange, that idea that would be fulfilled in Christ of the fuller Adam, of my life for his. You can take mine rather than his. And at the sight of such love, Joseph now has all he needs to establish a full peace between him and his brothers not qualified by demands of repentance, but freely given in love at this moment. He's not going to, they have repented. He's seen the fruits of the repentance. I'm not saying that, but he's just going to pour out love upon them. We have read a lot of terrible and wicked deeds done against Joseph. Deeds which first seemed impossible that any good could come from. But no more dividing walls of hostility need to remain here. The love of the Father, the sacrificial offering of Judah for, of his life for another has restored peace amongst the family of God. And we could see this start to unfold beginning in verse 1. Joseph, whom we've already seen earlier, managed his emotions back in chapter 43, verse 23 with Benjamin. He now no longer can contain it. He begins to weep, and as he's been now thus far speaking to the brothers through an interpreter, through an intermediary, through someone who speaks for him, as we learn back in chapter 42, verse 23, now he is going to remove the veil. He is going to come before them face to face, speak to them in Hebrew, speak to them in their own language. 
and address them. He calls all others who are not a part of the covenant family to depart from him, casting them out so he can speak uniquely to these brothers for the first time in the common tongue, face to face, since the division started. The bold love on behalf of the Father by Judah broke down that dividing wall of hostility. Bold love always has an opportunity to break down dividing walls of hostility. And so in verse 3, Joseph states to his brothers, I am Joseph. And then he asks, is my father still alive? And actually in that first question that he asks the brothers, once he reveals himself to the brothers, we can probably take a good guess at what was the hardest part of the 22 years of being divided, separated from his father due to the sin of his brothers. What was the hardest part for Joseph? The hardest part for him seems to have been the fact that he was separated from this father on whom he loved, and he loved dearly. And so that's why it's his first question. Once he reveals himself, once he unveils his face before them, once he shows who he is, is my father still alive? He has concern. He has love for the father that is unique and supreme. Beautiful, beautiful thing. Some might even say there are shadows of John 17 here in the high priestly prayer. Well, Jesus will call out to his own father to restore to him the glorified reality before his own sojourn into the world brought about by his own brothers' and sisters' sins. All throughout these passages, Joseph has been so concerned about this father of the shepherds. He kept asking them about their father, and it must have tasted like sweet honey on his lips to be able to finally say, my father. How is my father doing? And I must wonder if this shift in Genesis 45 anticipates the greater biblical shift of, of really that has ushered in in Pentecost through the Spirit of God that we can now cry out to God as Abba, Father. How good that is that we have a Father in heaven in whom we have been reconciled and whom we one day will before, be before the face of. But how do Joseph's brothers respond to this revelation of the favored son? They're utterly terrified. I don't like how the ESV translates it. I don't really even love how the King James translates it. ESV soft serves this to you. It uses the word dismayed. The King James Bible does a little bit better. It says something like troubled. But let me be clear. Terrified or horrified are the best readings of this word. This is the word Moses picks. He only uses it one other time. He uses it after in the song. They sing it in the song. After the waves have crushed the Egyptian armies in chapter 15 of Exodus. He uses this word, I think it's in verse 15. And it anticipates basically them It both looks back at the event of crushing Pharaoh's army, but also anticipates as they go into Edom, as they go into the land, all those who would stand against God, this terrified kind of nature. These brothers are terrified like this. Another time this is used in Scripture, I believe I might be off by a chapter, but it's in 1 Samuel chapter 28. 
when the witch of Endor, the medium of Endor, has told, Sa told Saul what will happen the next day, what will happen in the battle between that he's going to die, that he's going to lose his sons, basically, that the army will lose to the hand of the Philistines, and Saul, comprehending all the losses that are about to be upon him, is absolutely terrified and horrified at the thought. These are the types of moments that this word is used in Scripture. And so I believe what the brothers are sensing right now is this fear of he is going to destroy us. The judgment of God, the judgment of what we did against this brother is going to be poured out upon us. And I think that is a sense of their fear in this moment. The wrath of the Lord, this Lord will be upon me. He has all the power to destroy me and crush me. And yet Joseph is not revealing who he is. And he even reveals and remembers the sin that they committed against him. He does not remove the veil in order to lash out at them, but to heal a breach that has existed for more than 22 years, to display a perfect love, which is meant to cast out this kind of fear. And so in verse 4, Joseph beckons for the brothers to draw near. And yet notice how he asks them to draw near. He reminds them of their sin. Yes, I am the brother you sold into slavery. But Joseph's motive in this reminder is not to stir up guilt. It's actually to put their sin in verses 5 through 8 upon the backdrop of God's sovereign control over all things. Well, even many Christians tend to understand or look at this idea of God's sovereignty over all things as a form of bondage. Joseph actually believes and acknowledges that it's the idea of God's sovereignty that frees him. It has set him free from those principles of wanting to retaliate, wanting to strike back against the brothers. And what does Joseph make clear in this threefold repetition, emphasizing the sovereignty of God? We see it in verses 5, 7, and 8. In verse 5, God has sent me before you to preserve life. Verse 7, God has sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant, not to wipe out your households in judgment. And it, in verse 8, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Basically, Joseph is saying, in order to be free from anger, free from wanting to strike back at you in revenge, and to call you actually closer to me in reconciliation, I needed to put God and his ultimate redemptive hand and his plans and how he weaves things together at the center of my thoughts. And so in verse 5, we learn that God used Joseph in order to preserve life. And by the way, God being a God of consistency desires us, the spirit-born church, to desire to preserve life. Not to shrink back from such an obligation in our current moment in history, no matter how many grandstanding fools want to inform us how uncivilized it is to care about the preservation of life. Look at the largest debate right now in the public square on abortion. What is the debate really? It's a desire to cling to personal autonomy, to not surrender yourself to the sovereign hand of God, even when it would cut down the heartbeat of another in so doing. And it's not that the gospel does not offer forgiveness to such actions. It does. It's a full forgiveness. But it's set against 
the autonomy is set against the preservation of life. There is actually a greater preservation. If you were to decide to wake up today and to, you came to church and you had eaten a bald eagle omelet, egg omelet, for every egg you put in the omelet is two years in prison for you. We have a federal law protecting bald eagle eggs so that if you had a three-egg bald eagle omelet, that's six years in prison because it's a symbol of the great republic. But we want to be a civilized nation. And the ending in the heartbeat of a child, well, that's necessary for liberty. Children, a heritage of the Lord, that's necessary for liberty. Please, please, everyone knows what is really at stake here? We are to be a people who desire to preserve life and see life protected. So back to the question of God, Joseph attributing to God the foreordaining to come to pass all the events of the last 22 years. To see God intermix with undeniably evil events can make us naturally uncomfortable if we're following the text is fascinating how many theologians become like uh, Olympic gymnasts trying to bend and contort the text in order that what Joseph is plainly saying isn't what he's saying. God really can't be sovereign over all things, right? Then that would mean God would allow at times evil to happen. And we get uncomfortable with that idea of God being a God over all things. Not enough autonomy in it. And I think that has a lot to do in part with how we tend to think about evil only in one kind of way. Even though the Bible actually tries to get us to think about evil more dynamically than we typically do. And I want to illustrate one facet of evil this morning by using the biblical idea of darkness. Now behind this wooden wall of the organ is darkness. It is darkness. It's not total and complete darkness, but it's quite a lot of darkness. It's unpleasant to be back here. I wouldn't want to make my living this way, even though, you know, Adam makes his living this way. Here, I've got to close it. Adam makes his living this way. I don't want to make my living this way. It's uncomfortable being in an environment with darkness like this. Now, of course, with this darkness, this is self-imposed. I am experiencing this darkness of this back room, of this organ chamber, because I have brought myself to this place. That's that's sometimes how evil happens. It happens at our own hands. Something that we brought about through our own actions. Sometimes the shadows, the darkness falls upon us and the shadows grab a hold of us and darkness comes apart upon us in ways that We did not anticipate. We did not foresee. So how does this reconcile with God's sovereignty? Well, the fact is, that's not the end of the story. So we have a God who is a God of light. We have a God who breaks in, who is a rescuing God, who is a God of salvation, who is a God who redeems, a God who restores, a God who wants to cover ultimately the entire face of the earth with the good light of this world. One day, when the full reconciliation, when the fullness of even that passage in Isaiah we read is seen to be, we will no longer will need a son. We will have his son as the light of the world. 
God always breaks in. He breaks into the worst kinds of evils, the worst kinds of darkness we can find ourselves in. Even death itself, the cross is a testimony of this. We have a rescuing God who is always, he will always come for us and be for us. Yet what do we do? What do we do when we're in the back room? We tend to get impatient in the darkness. We don't remember the faithful promises of God. We send ourselves to a lament, but when we remember in faith, even our laments have a statement of trust. And so this is why, because Joseph has a better understanding of evil, he on one hand can admit, yes, you brothers did evil against me. And for 22 years, I uniquely suffered in the darkness because of it. But God's light has still broken through, and I've been made to witness his amazing masterwork. Basically, Joseph gave God gave Joseph new eyes to see how he works in new ways. Even when at first it didn't, it would have been hard to see. God is a God who reveals more of himself to us. And so, and he does that oftentimes by breaking into the darkness, revealing more in his light so that we have better eyes to see. So that we can say to ourselves and we can say to our other, uh, to others, Hey, yeah, it was awful. I mean, I know so many people in this room have lost loved ones, have, are suffering terrible things, and yet you've seen and you sense the presence of God in it, that he accompanies you in the darkness, and you have these beautiful testimonies. Beautiful testimonies. I was just was driving with an individual. I'm not going to name you. They were just giving me a beautiful testimony of the dark times they've recently been made to face, and then also the brilliant revealing of God's light in that darkness. And these are new songs that we get to sing, and new stories that we get to share, and new opportunities to learn more about God's love and reconciliation and forgiveness that, that allow us the opportunity to forgive boldly, like Joseph is going to forgive here. So brothers and sisters, the matter of evil is settled. God has taken care of it. God has woven temporary moments of darkness into his light and life-giving and his sovereign plan. He uses it. And it has been, their ultimate defeat has been set in motion. And God is a preserver of life. For those who are a part of his family, he will restore us beyond all we can think or imagine, even from the evils we are made to face. And when we think of God's sovereign hand in such a way, we can cast away, as Joseph is an example of here, hatred and bitterness by way of appreciating God's sovereignty. That's why Joseph sought to comfort the brothers through explaining God's sovereignty. Because God has now allowed the light of his plan to shine through and we now see the triumph over darkness and peace and reconciliation will reign for those who were once and for one time Joseph's enemies. And so, Christian, is there someone in your own life where you're essentially stuck in the back of the organ chamber, focusing on past evils or wrongs? Or maybe you haven't reconciled for your own past evils or wrongs. And even though God has already broken, you, broken through and given you the light to see, you just don't lock yourself in the room. Focusing on past darkness, 
Do not trap yourselves in the organ sanctums of life unless you're Adam and you need to do it for a living. When God already created a way that we are to be lived which, as people of light, we can trust in the sovereign hand of God and say to ourselves, hey, where I don't like where I am or don't like where I've been, the life giver, the light bearer has sent me here, which means God redeems it. And when you get a hold of this truth like Joseph has, you're set free from any real or in our day perceived injustices of life, injustices of life. I mean, there isn't a single member of BLM that has suffered even an inkling of the injustice that Joseph has. His own flesh and blood brother sold him into slavery. His slave owner's wife, after he upheld a godly sexual ethic, bore false witness about him and had him cast into prison. In prison, he helped a man who was troubled by a dream, who had access to Pharaoh. And the man, after Joseph's mending him and helping him, completely forgot about him for several years. Joseph would have had every right by popular understandings of vengeance to lash out and to get angry, get in people's faces, you know? That's a worldly telling of the story. That would create a revenge story. But all throughout Joseph's suffering, he has a sense of God, of the divine. And he knew and he worshiped a God of intentionality and purpose. And so he didn't lash out. He didn't crush the brothers. No, rather, he suffered well so that life and mercy might be preserved for the brothers and of the covenant family of the father in whom he so dearly loved. Joseph wasn't suffering so that he could become some rich Egyptian lord. Joseph wasn't suffering so he could attain for himself more power. Joseph was suffering and suffering well solely for the fact that he knew God and loved the father for which he came. And if that's not enough to give him purpose and a sense, and if that was not enough to give him purpose and a sense of direction in a senseless time, if that gave him purpose, it can give us purpose today. It changed everything for him. The freedom of God's sovereign hand, the guiding hand. And that's what we're called to find too. We have, as I mentioned in the prayer, we've had a yet another slew of terrible shootings in America. And there will continue to be more. And you know, there's something of an inconvenient truth about this all. And people don't want to talk about this. For those who reject God, who have convinced themselves of, let's say, scientism, or that, you know, we're just a byproduct of, uh, we're just evolved pond scum, or nihilism, we're meaningless and going to nowhere. In such belief systems, how can they handle such suffering? How can they handle suffering? They can't. Worldview matters, folks. Worldview produces fruits that follow its logic. We keep wondering why so many thorns are found or bad pieces of fruit are found in worthless worldviews. And don't realize the more direct and compelling truth in that debate. The only worldview that can bear suffering and not strike back and not lash out and give it true meaning is a worldview that at its central event takes the instrument of a cross, this wicked instrument of death, and says, look at that instrument. Look at that instrument of death. It actually is the most beautiful thing you have ever seen. Because the favored son of the father was willing to go upon that cross and die for you. 
to endure suffering for your sake so that you might have restitution and resolution and restoration with the Father who loves you. That your past sins could be forgiven. It's only the Christian worldview that can bring that to bear. No other worldview is going to bring that. And so what are they going to do with their suffering? They're going to, at best, go complain on Facebook and Twitter. At worst, they're going to say it's meaningless. All life's meaningless. I don't need to preserve life. I don't need to seek reconciliation. And they lash out. And as Joseph unpacks God's providential hand in all this, explaining how God made it so that even Pharaoh, even Pharaoh comes to him for wisdom in a fatherly manner, which, by the way, this, is, this deals with all the verses that deal with Pharaoh, because I am getting close to the end here. But this is a quick summary. Notice the fact that Pharaoh is finding everything, hearing everything that Joseph says. Joseph says, hey, Pharaoh comes to me for information, for wisdom. And Pharaoh not only agrees with him, he actually becomes more generous, and he offers a more generous offering than Joseph first comes up with for the brothers. That's all you need to realize, that Pharaoh is so delighted in this favored son and what he's done for Egypt that he hands basically his crown in one sense to Joseph. But returning from Pharaoh's verses to now resting in verses 9 through 12, in the first half of verse 9, notice how the favored son of Israel now gives a great commission of sorts to his brothers. Hurry up and go to my father and say. That's a commission. In the technical sense. Then the second half of verse 9, Joseph reveals in whose authority he speaks. It's in his authority. God has made Joseph lord over all of Egypt. That's in whose authority they are to go in the name of. And then Joseph gives them the command of what they are instructed to say. He basically says, starting in verse 9, Go up to my father, tell him what's happened to me. By the way, does this sound familiar with any other favored son in Scripture? who sends out his forgiven and restored brothers to draw the covenant family of God to him? Sound like something else maybe at the end of the Gospel of Matthew? And where does Joseph in his authority want the covenant family of God to go? They are to go to the land of Goshen, or Goshen as we say it, of where this church gets its name. So many love to ask, what is Goshen hopping mean? What's that? Well, Goshen was a place of plenty, a place of abundance. That's in its name. But Goshen was also a place where the people of God could draw near and nearer to God. We actually talked about this a little bit a few weeks ago, how the Canaanite society had a, uh, an ability to kind of inculcate and infiltrate the covenant family of God. Egypt, however, they had a little thin veneer of snobbery, if you want to say it that way. And so they didn't want to intermix with people. And that would actually allow Israel to grow from a family into a great nation. There are blessings in this. And so, they are called to come to this land of Goshen, where they are to be separate and distinct, and awaiting the day where they go into the greater promised land. To draw near a place of abundance, where there is more than plenty, but they're also awaiting a greater deliverance to come. What an interesting thing. You know, nothing will kill a church faster than deciding just to look out at the world and decide, hey, let's put it on our church road sign that we agree with everything in the public square that is currently constructed. 
We are to be separate and distinct. We are to find a land of Goshen. And when it came to the topographical land of Goshen, it was a rancher's paradise. We've already talked about this was a rancher's family. This was a land that was prone to flooding. Obviously, we're in the famine, but it was where you went to go feed your animals. Now, when you think of ancient Egypt, it was a society of big buildings, big structures, big building projects. You don't want to settle in a flood zone. However, the people of God, the people of Israel, they knew the God who held back the waters, but they also knew that they were only temporary sojourners here. And so they can live in tents. They can live in mud houses. They can live in these things, and they're happy. They're happy. There's food outside. They have everything they need to settle and be a separate but distinct people of God. And yet still, in that, we've already seen how Egyptians have come into the covenant family through Joseph's line, but also we even have some Canaanites through Judah's line. They will still reach the nations. They're actually at a key vantage point, a key place on the eastern front of Egypt, this land of Goshen. And so it made it an ideal place to be with God and to be God's people for a little while as God continued to work in them. And so Goshen, Goshen Huffen, it was a temporary setting to draw near to God, a place of plenty and abundance, and it became a good dwelling place or haven for God's people. And then in our final verses, we'll look at today 14 and 15, starting with Benjamin, but extending to all the brothers, Joseph grabs a hold of the brothers one by one. And they weep together and they embrace one another. Joseph is making peace with his past in this moment. He embraces each and every one of them. And as we consider such a beautiful image, we should dare to ask ourselves, is there a person in our lives at this moment even in whom we might need to forgive like this? Or we might, in whom might need to receive your forgiveness? God is honored when we seek such reconciliation. In this group hug is a picture of heaven. In this group hug is an anticipation of the day in which we will embrace our Lord and Savior in the new Jerusalem. In that city in which the gates are named for these very sons of Israel. Think of that, Christian. There is a day soon coming for all of us if we are the Lord's. Well, we will enter through the gates that bear the name of these brothers whom were reconciled through the favored son. We will walk through them in heaven. You can see it in Revelation 21, verse 12. And how can such names of these once sinful brothers be allowed to adorn the most sacred and holy city to come? The new Jerusalem itself. It could only come to be because the favored son of the Father Most High chose instead of lashing out against his brothers, mercy and peace in both love of the Father and a desire to preserve life, to preserve a remnant covenant family that was to go forth in the strength of his name and his name alone. He allowed the darkness of past evils to give away to the revealings of greater light. And of course, the son I'm talking about right now is no longer Joseph, but our Savior Jesus Christ in whom will still bear the wounds on his body 
when He one day embraces us and wipes away each and every one of our tears. And how could such a love like this exist? Because He is a God of forgiveness. A God whom in spite of past sins has wiped away the debt we once owned by means of the cross and now calls us to draw near to Him, to set ourselves apart in the good land, in the good soil that is His Word as we await the greater place that He has prepared for us in the life to come. Christian, we are called to be life givers. Heed the wisdom of this passage and recognize we can give life by forgiving past wrongs, by reconciling with once enemies, and by trusting in God even in the hard moments of life. Because in loving our enemies and those who have become our adversaries, those who have done us wrong and betrayed us, often new life can spring forth from bold love such as that. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you as these pages continue to wane in the book of Genesis here in your first book of the Bible is all the foreshadowing we need for an anticipation for that descendant of Judah whom when he said, take my life for the life of my brothers, you did not spare him. You allowed him to pay the full brunt of what our sin deserved. And so let us be mindful of the work of our faithful and favored brother. Let us, because of that work, be a community of preservers of life, but also a, a community that desires to see others come to new life, to see darkness broken in by a scene of great light, Lord. Help us to not be trapped in our own patterns of sinful behavior, of our own setting desires to return to places and thoughts that you have since forgiven. Let us trust in the full forgiveness of Christ and in his mercy. Now go forth throughout the world proclaiming his mercy, love, and rescue. Indeed, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.